Hello where you are. Um, friends and family, we're so gathered to have this opportunity to worship together with you. We're grateful for this opportunity with technology that we can be together and worshiping God. We pray that the service this morning has been a help and a blessing. Um, I pray that God's grace finds you this, this day. I pray that God's mercy keeps you and that God's love lifts your head up. Uh, we're going to be continuing our sermon series about following the commands of Christ. We have said that Jesus is our Lord, and because he's our Lord, he's our King. He is the one we follow. He is the one we look to not only for an examples of how to follow God, but actually to listen to what he asks and then to go and do it. Jesus is our source. He's the one we learn from. Uh, for the last several weeks, we've been looking through these commands. We've talked about repent, follow me, uh, being salt and light, loving our neighbor, the Great Commission, which commands us to go out and make disciples and to teach people in our circles and people all around us everything that God has taught us, the command to be graceful, the command to love our enemies, to live for treasures in heaven, not to worry. And, and this week, we're going to talk about serving others to please God. Uh, what I love about this is that called to serve is something that Jesus gives to all of his followers. We are all called to serve. We're called to serve because Jesus is our servant leader. Jesus is the the servant, the ultimate servant, who in leaving heaven to come to earth, who in living and walking this earth, going to Calvary Street, being raised from the dead, and now even in heaven as he prepares heaven for us and, and as he stands before the Father as our mediator, he is our ultimate servant, the one who loves and works for our good. But Jesus is also our leader. He's our Lord. Again, because he is our Lord, he is the one we submit to as we not only say he's king, but we live for his kingdom. So Jesus in calling us to serve is really an invitation that all of us who say Jesus is Lord, all of us who say, I follow you, I give my life to you, we are pledging then to do our best with the Spirit's help, with the body of Christ around us, to live and love like Jesus lived and loved. What's interesting about serving is that, you know, we are not immune to, to our own ego. I was reminded in preparing this message about James and John. If you know the story is, you know, Jesus is now in the, the Gospels told about the, the third time that, hey, I'm going to die. My time is coming. My time is coming. And James and John uh, uh, kind of come up to Jesus and they're just like, hey. We know you're going to usher in the kingdom. We know you're the king. We know you're the Lord. Um, when you come back, you know, can we sit on your right and can we sit on your left? And Jesus looks at them. It's like, do you even know what you're asking? Do you know what you're asking? The father has already determined who sits on my right and who sits on my left. You do not know what you're asking. But guess what? You know in this world that those who are regarded as rulers of, of the Gentiles and the people, they lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you, says Jesus. Instead, whoever wants to be great must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus, in calling us to serve, reminds us that serving is the ultimate work of all his people, that all that we do should be for service to him. We should not look for, um, you know, pleasure or we should not look for acclaim as the world looks for acclaim because to love like Jesus is to be a servant of all. 
One of the things I really appreciate about the brethren in Christ is that as we think about who we are, as we think about our commitment to follow God, and this has been truth for centuries now, and, and hopefully until Jesus comes back, it'll always be true. But the serving aspect of our faith has been so fundamental. In fact, if you look at our logo, you'll see the basin and the towel. We are a, a denomination of not just Anabaptists, but we're a denomination of foot washers. And we do that sacrifice, or we do that sacrament, that service, because it reminds us that Jesus the God of the universe, that the lowest of low, even before he goes to Calvary. It reminds us that all of us in all of our everyday scenes are called to be a servant of all. We are called to serve all in a way that pleases God. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 1 to 4. Matthew 6, 1 to 4. I'm just going to start with a quick word of prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you so much that he's our Lord. Lord Jesus, teach us how to keep surrendering all to you. Holy Spirit, teach us how to give our lives fully over to you. Transform us and make us into the image of Jesus Christ. Father God, hold on to us. Hold on to us and keep molding us into the image of your Son. Lord Jesus, we pray now that we can not only have your example, but that we may heed it, that we may live by it, and that in all things we can learn how to serve God, um, how to serve others to please God as well. Thank you so much for your love for us. In your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen. In Matthew 6, I'll be reading verses 1 to 4, starting at verse 1. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. What I love about this passage is that Jesus begins asking, commanding that we give our heads, our hearts, our hands to God. Jesus is demanding here that our heads, our rational thinking, our logic, that all that would be given to God, that our hearts, the essence of who we are, our emotions, our dreams, our, our, our abilities, everything would be given to God and that our hands, meaning the work that we do, the way that we serve, the going out and listening and heeding to God, that all that should belong to God and be given to God. Why? Because God is the hero of the story. Whether you look at Israel or the church, God is the one who sets into motion. He created us. He, he gave us and blessed us with Eden. When we sinned and fell apart from us, he made it possible for us to be in relationship with him. God called a special people so that he could bless Israel so that they can bless the world. And God called them to be his special people. And after the, the, the from Israel, God then sends his son through the line of David. And when Israel comes and gives us the Messiah, we know Jesus is Lord for God sends Jesus because he so loved the world. And Jesus comes again. He leaves heaven. He comes to earth. He walks the earth. He goes to, he shows us how to live and love to please God. He goes to Calvary's tree. He's raised, he dies and he's raised from the, from the grave. Then he goes to heaven to prepare it for us, but even right now stands before the Father on our behalf. God is the hero of the story of the world. God is the hero of everything that we know. 
But personally, we also know that God is the hero of our story. Every morning that we wake up, the breath in our lungs is because it's a gift from God. The goodness that we know is because of God's faithfulness. The mercy that we know is because of God's grace. The love that we know is because of God's love. God is the hero of our story. As we think back on our lives, we can see places he's been faithful. You know, deep waters he's carried us through. We can see how he continues to provide today, and we can and trust him to provide tomorrow. So God is not just the, the hero of the big story of the world. He's also the hero of, of your story. Why do Jesus want God to have our heads, our hearts, and our hands? Because God is the hero of the big story. God is the hero of our story. But because Jesus is the story. Jesus is not only the center of it all, but Jesus is the one we hold on to. He's the Lord and Savior. Why is God want our heads, our hearts, our hands? It's also because with the Spirit, we can tell this story to our world. With the story, we can tell this story to our everyday scenes. With this story, we can tell this story to everyone we meet. And what is the story? The story is simply what God has done for you what God is doing for you, and what God will do for you. That's the story we should all be living to tell. What God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. But the other part in storytelling is simply living, loving, like Jesus. It's serving others in a way that we are pleasing God and not ourselves, not even the people we serve, not even the onlookers, but we're serving in order to please God. And essentially, that's the message of this first half of Matthew 6 from verses 1 to 18. That is the essential message and is delivered in Jesus's classic teaching style where he's going to start again from a place of understanding for his people, but then he's going to use that understanding and enhance it to take them to where he desires them to be. Because Jesus here is talking about righteousness. Jesus here is talking about faithfulness to God. And Jesus knows that his audience understands righteousness. And it's probably understood a little bit different than we understand righteousness today. Because to his audience, when they thought of righteousness, they thought about the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees looked righteous. Why? Because the Pharisees, you know, they played the righteous game. If you want to know what righteousness looked like, you just have to look at the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees were honored for their righteousness. I think a lot of times we don't do the, the early enough work to, to realize how much honor was a foundation in that culture. So it wasn't so from us, you know, 2,000 years later, it's easy for us to be like, oh, look at the Pharisees. They had their nose in the air. They thought they were better than everyone. No, 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 no. These are people who in their minds thought they were being faithful to God and everyone around them thought they were being faithful to God. Most people would not look at Pharisees and say, look at those hypocrites. That's why it makes what Jesus says in this passage so strong. Because everyone in that culture would have looked up to the Pharisees. They would have said, man, if I was good enough, if I was righteous enough, I would be a Pharisee. Now the Pharisees knew, and everyone in Israel at that time knew, that the, the, the Bible or the Torah, the, the, the Moses' law, the, the Mosaic law that comes from God to the people had about 613 laws. Now, 
I know what you're thinking. That's a lot of laws. How do we remember all of them? Well, the people would boil them down. And the Pharisees had actually looked at all the law and they boiled them down to three things. And not coincidentally, but I think quite intentionally, those three things are what show up in Matthew 6, 1 to 18. The three things were almsgiving or giving to the poor, prayer and fasting. So they looked at all the laws and that's what they boiled it down to was almsgiving, giving to the poor, prayer and fasting. That's what the world that Jesus is speaking to would have understood righteousness as. Are you giving to the poor? Are you praying and are you fasting? And because it was such an honor-laden culture, obviously if you're giving to the poor, we need to see it to give you honor. If you're fasting, we need to see it so we know how righteous you are. If, if you're, you're praying, we need to see it so we know how holy you are. That's what righteousness looked like to them. But the question becomes, what does righteousness look like to us? Is it how we dress? Is it who we hang out with or don't hang out with? Is it what we, you know, what positions we take or, or don't take? What does righteousness really look like to us? What is the game that we're playing so that the world around us thinks we're righteous, we're the good ones? What are we living to honor? Better yet, who are we living to honor? Because we must remember that, yes, we don't have the Mosaic law of 613. In fact, there's multiple places in the Gospels where Jesus boils down those 613 laws to two things. Remember, he said, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. So righteousness for us then becomes ultimately living and loving like Jesus. Because Jesus seems to believe that if you live and love like Jesus, you will look like Jesus to your world. So in this passage, Jesus is going to start with their standard of righteousness and he's going to grow it. He's going to say that, yeah, you think it's giving to the poor. You think, and that's the one we'll focus on today, you think it's praying in a certain way and you think it's fasting in a certain way. But I I want to expand that. And he begins this passage. And this passage actually, because it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness. That be careful always reminds me of my ninth grade Spanish teacher, Senora Bonet, because I, I don't know if you can imagine this, but I was a little bit of a smart aleck, right? And one of the things she would always tell me, probably about once a class, only once a class, I wasn't that bad, you know? But one of the things she would always tell me was, ten cuidado, you know? Watch yourself. In my culture, we say, check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? She would always say, you know, Enrique, ten cuidado. And I think that's that's the same spirit that Jesus is saying here, because when he's saying ten cuidado, he's saying, be careful not to practice. I need you to check yourself. I need you to be mindful that you do not practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. I need you to check yourself. I need you to be watchful. I need you to be mindful, because if you're just practicing righteousness so that others can see it, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Ten cuidado. Check yourself. Be mindful not to practice righteousness. Serve God in your serving others. Serve God in how you're loving others. Serve God in everything that you give for others. Please God and not others, not even yourself. Please, God, honor God in your service. Honor the people you're serving, but don't do it for honoring yourself. 
And then he continues, so when you give to the greedy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Jesus is calling us in this first four verses of Matthew chapter 6 that we have to move from simply service as we see fit. From simply almsgiving to actually loving. And, and Matthew 6, 1 then is actually serves as like his thesis statement for the rest of the 17 verses to follow. In that I want you, my people, to serve God as you serve others. Because when you serve others to please God, you will look like me. What's interesting is that when Jesus gets to almsgiving, when he gets to giving to the poor, you know, the reason the Pharisees, again, they were trying their best, right? The reason they said almsgiving was so crucial and was so important to being righteous is because time and time again in the Mosaic law, God shows his love and his care for the poor. God commanded them to glean so that the poor would have food. How they harvested was important so that the poor would have food, that God would even command them to have years of jubilee or, or to cancel debts. Why? To provide for the poor, the weak, and the widows. The prophets, if you missed it in the Mosaic law, the prophets come centuries later and they come again time and time again. And the one thing they seem to always, always go after Israel for, go after God's people for, is their treatment or really their mistreatment and their injustice to the poor. Amos does this. Isaiah does this. I spent a, a couple weeks in Micah earlier, uh, a couple months months ago and, and Micah it was shocking to me how Micah is, 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 is taking on almost the rage of God as he says man you are God's chosen people yet you're only living for yourselves you are God's chosen people yet you're making money off the poor and taking advantage of the poor you are God's chosen people yet your leaders in your synagogues and your leaders in your politics they are all taking advantage of the poor God cared deeply for the poor that's why alms give was so important but because they lived in an honor culture about what I look like as I do my righteousness this almsgiving which had been such an important part of God saying I want you to love the poor I want you to love the marginalized I want you to love the the widow the orphan those who get left behind it, because of this honor culture though instead of it being something inherent you know, I think it's something that's inherent to God's heart. This is what God does. He loves the marginalized. It became a show. It became a show. And Jesus here is saying, you know, don't toot your own horn as you serve. And some people go back and forth. They said, you know, like when Jesus says, you know, don't be like the, 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 the ones who give to the needy and announce it with trumpets. There's some people who really think that some of the Pharisees went around and blew trumpets, right? But there's some people who think that the, the trumpeting sound was when they put the coins in the bin, then it would just rattle back and forth. But I think the simplest definition or the simplest explanation is probably the best one. Don't toot your own horn and say you're serving God. Don't give to put on a show. And Jesus uses hypocrites, which is a word we understand, I think, quite well. 
But we have to remember that Jesus is actually pulling from the theater here. Jesus is saying, when you go to the theater, the actors put on a show. They put on a mask, you know, and and one scene they're happy and one scene they're sad. They're putting on a show. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be righteous, don't toot your own horn. Don't be a hypocrite who's just doing to put it on a show. Don't give and deceive yourself. I think that's important for us to remember because if we are giving to toot our own horn, to feel good about ourselves, if we are giving to put on a show, God is not mocked. God is not deceived. The only people who get deceived is we the ones doing the deceiving. And Jesus says, if that's what you're living to do, if you're serving others to make yourself feel good, if you're serving others because you just think you're better, if you're serving others to put on a show, you're not only deceiving yourself, but whatever praise you get now is all you will get later. Whatever praise that they give you now will all that you will get later. Yet, we are called to give But how are we to give? In verse 3, Jesus says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so so your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. God calls us to give. And here he starts off with almsgiving, giving to the poor, loving the marginalized, looking out for the weak, the immigrants, looking out for the the widows and the orphans. God calls us to love here, not only because it's on his heart, but because if you look like God, you act like God. Give because God commands compassion. Give because Jesus models compassion. Give because the Spirit works through your compassion. Give because it's a service. You know, a lot of times we talk about giving, we talk about how it's a sacrifice, and and God does love a cheerful giver, and it is sacrificial giving. But give because it's a service to the kingdom, because God can use a widow's might. God can use a cold cup of water. God can use whatever gift you have that you give back to him. Give because there's a need. One of the things I love about God is that we, his people, are so diverse that we get little pieces. All of us get just just a, a little piece of who God really is. And not only do we need all of each other to see a fuller picture of God, but there's just certain things that are going to move us more than they move the next person. And that thing that moves you, that need that you see, God wants you to give to that need. Give because God sees it. And God will bless it. You know, a lot of times, those of us who grew up in church, we think about God sees us, right? It it was kind of like the the thing that kept us out of trouble. It's like, I'm not going to do this because God might see it. But what I love about this passage is Jesus says, give. Not because you want to feel good. Not because you want people to give you praise. In fact, give in secret. Give undercover. Give when no one's looking. Give from your heart. Because God sees it and God will bless it. You know, the Jews had 613 laws. They boiled it down to three, giving to the poor, praying and fasting. Jesus took those same 613 laws. He boiled it down to two. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. So though this passage is talking about almsgiving, I think for us, the call here is all of our giving. 
And one of the things I've always loved at this church, when I started off in the seats as a congregant, you know, then as a youth pastor, I got to see it. Pastor of discipleship and youth, I got to see it. And now even as a senior pastor, I live to see it. And what that is, is that when we talk about giving here, yes, finances are important. Yes, finances go and they, uh, they help us do this kingdom work. But what I love about this church is that our concept of giving is more than your pocketbook. Yes, God calls us to give with our finances, but God calls us to give with our hearts, which means our gifts belong to him. How are we giving that back to him? Our skills belong to him. How are we giving that back to him? Everything we've been blessed with belongs to him. How are we giving that back to him? So the question to all of us is, how are we giving today? Because every gift you've been given can be used by God to serve the people around you. And I think the reason this is all important is because when we read passages like this, it's so easy to pick on the Pharisees and forget that we're susceptible to the same things they fell for. You know, the Pharisees lived in an honor culture. We live in a fame culture. We live for the likes on our, instant, uh, our, our social media. We live, you know, no one really likes to walk into work and have everyone say bad things about you, right? We like when everyone says good things about us. We like when people make us feel good and, and tell us how wonderful we are. But I think this reminder is that, like, we are just as susceptible to the, the Pharisees who put on a show. So the check for all of us, the, the ten cuidado, if you want to listen to C.N.R. Bonet, that the being mindful of all of us is, as I do this, what is my intention? What is my motive? Because Jesus knows that you can put on a show, but he's not interested in your show. We are just as susceptible to pride as those Pharisees were. We are just as susceptible to, to not making Jesus the center as those Pharisees were. We're just as susceptible to making us the center, to, to, to giving but not in a way that honors the people we're giving to. Forgetting that they are not only our equals, but they're our sisters and brothers who are members of us. We are susceptible to being hypocrites that put on a mask, that put on a show. And I would even argue that maybe more than the Pharisees, that we today are even more susceptible to pleasing others. Jesus, though, calls us to check ourselves, yes. To check our motives, yes. But to set up our lives and to use our gifts in a way that it's giving to God for others. I think we are all called to live for the kingdom. So I want to leave with four things that I think are going to help us to give, not just financially. If you can give financially, I think that's wonderful. Please do, because God calls us to. But I'm thinking this morning about all the gifts that God's given you. You know, the first thing I think we all need to do is maybe take some time this week. And you know, I, was, I, I say this prayer, I feel like every couple months, right? But it stuck with me for years. And there was a, a lady who wrote In Christ Alone. And I remember she was leading a workshop and, and she had this line in her prayer that I probably listened to 15 years ago. And it stuck with me. And she said, God, forgive me for good left undone. So I think the first part is for all of us is to not only just say, God, where have you gifted me? God, where do you need me? God, where's the need? But I think all of us have to acknowledge that God has blessed us with so much 
but we have left good undone. That God has blessed us with so much that we fall short in giving it back to him. That God has blessed us with so much that we are not truly fully giving it to him. So I think the first thing we need to do is, is identify that good that we're leaving undone. Identify the ways we're falling short. And then ask God for forgiveness. Ask God to forgive us for not using our gifts more fully for him. Then I think the next thing I want you to do this week is to identify a need within yourself. It might be hard for some of us. For some of us, it might be too easy. I want you to start with just one need, one need that you identify within yourself, one place that you know, hey, God, I am lacking here. Hey, God, I am struggling here. Hey, God, I can't make it here. Hey, God, I am falling short here. Identify just one and then commit to praying to ask God to fill it. Where you're empty, ask him to fill it. Where you fall short, ask him to help you up. Where you don't, you know, where you're not meeting what you think is the requirements, ask God to help you fill wherever you fall short. And then, so after you ask for forgiveness for the good left undone, after you ask God to fill the emptiness that you feel is overwhelming you, I want you to then take some time to look around. Look around your family. Look around your friends. Look around your communities. Look around your city. Look around your neighborhood. I want you to spend some intentional time looking around. And maybe you already have an idea where I'm going with this. But I want you to simply identify one need. One need that you can help fill for someone this week. Just one. Identify one need. And then ask God to give you the boldness to fill it. And maybe the way you fill it is by finding a group who's already doing. One of my greatest lines I think Pastor Woody used to always say that I love is that find where God is moving and go join in. I think that's a great way to look at it. But I just want you to spend some time looking around and finding one group or or one need in your, your family, in your community, in your neighborhood, and just try to fill it. But as you fill it, Remember what Jesus says about serving. Remember what Jesus says about giving. Don't do it just to please yourself and feel better. Don't do it for the praise of others. If possible, do it anonymously. Do it quietly. Do it to please God, not others, not yourself, only God alone. So that's the challenge I want you to leave with. As you read through this passage, as you go through this week, Identify where you fall short and ask for forgiveness. Identify a need within yourself and ask God to fill it. And then do the hard work of looking around and asking God, where can I help? Lord, give me the boldness to go and fill this need. Amen. God bless you all.